0: One of my main goals in this class is to go beyond your short-term memory, and uh, you know rather than just stuff a bunch of data into your short-term memory, really try to try to communicate things that will actually be of value to you uh, after you leave the class. And you may actually even remember, and because uh, it is a, it is a fantastic topic, it's, and uh, so what I've done is I've um, we have certain books we're using. And, uh, of course, we'll be having class discussions and lectures and also uh, papers to write. And so all three of them really focus on the same thing. Rather than just like throw out a bunch of data, I'm trying to really structure this and focus on certain important fundamental aspects of this topic so that it should be very, very clear. So when I go over now what we're going to be doing in the class, um, again, don't at all panic if it if you're not completely, you don't know exactly where you are because the things I'm going to mention here briefly, we're going to talk about a lot over and over and over again. It'll be extremely clear. And uh, Another goal I I have in this class is to reduce as far as possible your stress level. In other words, uh, there's not going to be any, like, trying to figure out what's going to be on a test or what you have to know. I'm going to try to make that extremely clear so you can focus all of your energy just on learning. And uh, so, basically, I'm going to give you today everything, all the requirements for the class. There will be no requirements or tests or anything that you don't know about today and all the questions and so on. So, uh, and there will be no in-class tests, actually. It's just going to be two papers. So, I'll, uh, anyway, begin the trailer here. As far as the, uh, I'm going to give you also today a syllabus and, uh, and paper topics. There are two papers. As far as the uh, course requirements, uh, one point which is uh, essential is that basically well, basically the class is going to happen here in this room I mean assuming this building doesn't blow up or anything. So the, the class is essentially going to be in this room. We're going to have readings and uh, the readings are important because it provides us certain information which is necessary to have an intelligent discussion but basically this is the class here. Uh, we're going to be discussing things and I'm going to be talking about things and uh, I really never wanted to be a talking book when I grew up. So I'm not just going to repeat what's in the book. I have all kinds of things I want to talk to you about which, which are based on information in the book which, which are also go beyond the book. So as far as the uh, course requirements, one third of the grade This is my least uh, favorite aspect of teaching a grade. I really would prefer not to grade people, but I can't avoid it. So, uh, one-third of the grade is based on class attendance, and as I put in the syllabus, physical and mental. (laughs) You know, there's just being here. If you're just here, physically and mentally, that's... And we're going to have little homework assignments. Um, For every reading... Uh, there are some questions to answer, and uh, that's just to try to give you an impetus to read. I know that I probably, if I was a student, would be much more likely to read if I had answered some questions. And um, as far as questions, you don't have to even get it right. Basically, the questions are, they're not graded, and you just have to show that you've more or less read the text. Just put it up so that it's obvious you read it or simulated a reading of it. And uh, so not great. So if you just do that, just come to class, which you really have to do, and are just present. It doesn't mean you have to talk a lot if you want to talk. I mean, there'll be discussions, but if you're shy, just being present really adds something. I mean, everyone here actually has a unique life, and a unique life experience. Everyone here has ideas which are different than other people's ideas. And so just by being here and, and mentally being present, it actually adds something. It it actually enriches my experience and I think everybody else. So just coming to class and and being here and answering the simple questions uh, based on the reading is a third of the grade. So if you just do that, that's a third of the grade. The other two-thirds are uh, bribery and what was the other one? No. The other two-thirds are uh, two papers. There are two papers. One is due about halfway through the semester. Uh, on October 24th, and the other paper is due on December 10th. And I'm going to give you today a paper that explains, well, a sheet that explains what the paper is about. And again, uh, it may look a little intimidating at first, but I assure you that we're going to talk about it over and over and over again. So anything on the paper topic that's not clear to you now I think will become even more clear than you ever wanted it to be by the time you have to write the paper. So, uh, those are the requirements. Just come, uh, participate, even just by paying attention. That's the significant participation. And and just do the papers and the little questions. Again, the questions, you don't have to get the answers right. It's, they're not graded. It's just a way of trying to create a little bit of a healthy amount of pressure on you. So you won't have an anxiety attack, but you will read the selections so that we can have more intelligent discussions in class. So any questions on that so far? No one's left yet those are the requirements Um, and of course I'm I'm sure you know what the books are in the syllabus I've uh, for my own use I uh, it explains the basic topic for every class session and uh, it's chronological and after the date, like this is August 25th today and it's like dot one. The one just means it's the first class so you can sort of keep track how far you are in the class. I did it for myself and I thought I might as well give it to you so you can tell you know when it's going to end how much more you have to go, it's like on a flight sometimes they show you those little maps on the airplane so you know how much more how much longer am I going to be on this plane. So now as far as the class itself I want to uh, go over what I consider to be the relevance of this topic, the methodology which we're going to employ in trying to understand this amazing topic of the religions of India. Uh, What else? Uh, History. We are basically going to approach this from a historical perspective because it happened historically, that's actually how it happened. Uh, and of course, within different historical periods, we will go off into different topics that are relevant, so it won't be, we won't be enslaved by a historical framework, but basically it'll be logical and historical. And, uh, well, I'll, actually I'll get to that in a second. Uh, the, we're going to be doing dialectical history, if you know Hegel or Marx, but dialect, I'll explain that. Again, anything that's not clear to you will be more than clear if you just hang in there. So, the relevance. uh, Just a few numbers. This is the... India is the second largest country in population in the world. 1.3 billion people as of several weeks ago. And uh, it's one-fifth to one-sixth of the world's population, human population. Second fastest growing economy, the fourth largest economy in the world largest democracy and one of the freest presses in the world. So, uh, in terms of its, that's one kind of relevance. I mean, the extent to which you want to know about the world and be prepared to deal with the real world out there in an increasingly globalized planet, India is a very important country and becoming more important every day. So, and... People in India have always cared a lot about religion. It's always been very important people in, uh, in India. And uh, therefore, understanding the religion of India, the, the religions of India, and the history of Indian religion <coughs> is a, a, an essential part of understanding India. I think that's fair to say. I'm going to put my own little phone clock out there so I... Uh, know. Okay. Um... Uh, there's another relevance, which, which in a sense is uh, more profound. And that is that um, assuming, as I think we should assume objectively, that religion is an extremely important part of what makes people tick. And uh, there were periods in Western academics based on the influence of Marxism and the whole Marxist social science movement to sort of downplay religion. There were, there, you can study this. If you study the intellectual history of the West, you can see very clearly that... Uh, there was a pretty long period in which Western intellectuals believed in, in an evolutionary model that religion was simply an evolutionary phase that human beings were going to transcend, that humanity was going to outgrow religion. It was sort of a pre-rational or irrational stage of life, pre-scientific, and we would outgrow it. That was actually the mood uh, ages ago when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley. And I had many professors in, in whether it was in genetics or history or this or that field that basically tried to convince us that we needed to outgrow uh, religion. That didn't happen, actually. Actually, Marxism kind of. The world kind of outgrew Marxism, not religion. So it's now admitted in academic circles that religion is a very important part of human life. It's always been. And India, I think, provides an extraordinary opportunity to study human religion uh, for the following reasons. First of all, India has a long history, a long documented history. I mean, I suppose every place in the world has been inhabited. Well, many places have been inhabited for a long time, but India has a, a very long documented history. Uh, and it's, it's a large country. It's about, I mean, basically South Asia what was traditionally historically before the partition of India and Pakistan after World War II, Afghanistan and also you could say to some extent Sri Lanka and certainly Pakistan these were all parts of a single culture area and um, it has perhaps the best river system in the world, there are just rivers like major rivers everywhere in South Asia, there's a lot of very fertile land there's uh, very diverse topography, the highest mountains in the world, there are deserts and Deserts and uh, rainforests and jungles and some really great beaches, also. Anyway, so because of the you know in pre-industrial civilization, having water and having good farmable land and having enough space for everybody meant you get a large population. That's why Mesopotamia, which in Greek you know, meso between Potamia, the rivers, that's between. That's why the Egyptian, the great civilizations of ancient times were all built on rivers for transportation, for water, for irrigation, all that stuff. So India, with all its rivers, always had relatively, for the time, a fairly large population. It, because of the differences in topography and climate, it had a diverse population. And, uh, and this is something I find most remarkable about India. As far back as you can go in the history of India, the earliest texts, which are very, very old, it was a free culture. They actually have freedom of religion. They have freedom of speech. You can read in text, like Mahabharata, which we'll be talking about thousands of years old, that just people could go out in the street and say, the king's a jerk. And if you did that in other parts of the world, your head would come off so fast, you would know what hit you. But you could actually go out in the street in public places in India to say, this government, it's, you know, it stinks, it's no good. And you'll find cases of that in Mahabharata. There was freedom of religion. So when you when you get these factors, a long history, a lot of people, and the last one is uh, I'm sorry I left out that if you study the history of India, there have always been a, there's always been a significant number of very intelligent people in India. That's always been the case. There have always been a lot. Not that everyone was intelligent in any country, except the American electorate. But if you look at the history of India. There have always been a lot of very intelligent people. They had, they've had, they always had, for thousands of years, intellectually, a very sophisticated culture. India, along with Europe, is one of the very few places in the world that independently came up with a comprehensive, sophisticated, systematic, philosophical tradition, without Western help. If you look at other parts of the world, like for example, with, with the flowering of Islamic culture, say about a thousand years ago in some parts of the world, uh, they basically were building on Aristotle, and the greatest uh, Christian philosopher, the most influential Christian philosopher of the Middle Ages, Augustine from late antiquity was basically a Platonist. So, but India independently came up with a systematic, comprehensive, very sophisticated philosophical tradition, thousands of years ago. So, when you get a lot of intelligent, free people. A lot of intelligent, free people who are inclined toward religion and you have a long history, you get an amazing spectrum of human religiosity. You basically get every conceivable type of religion. And so, for all these reasons, I think India is perhaps the best single place to study human religion because of all those factors. So that's another relevance of it. Um, As far as methodology, just some things very quickly beat the clock. Uh, okay. Another point is that um, there's a lot of passion sometimes in academics and people sometimes go to extremes. I mean, like scholars. And so I'm going to try to avoid two extremes. One is to say that uh, all religions are basically the same. You just have to understand them. They're all basically saying the same thing. In fact, there's, that's even sort of a popular right now, like all paths lead to the same goal, it's all the same. And so that's a little sentimental, and usually that assertion is not based on a serious study of world religions. But then as a reaction to that, many scholars went to the other extreme and said that you can't compare religions. It was actually an anti-comparison movement in academia. Where, at a certain point, it was not like academically respectable to compare religions, because if you do that, you're sort of denying the uniqueness of every religion, and so you can. Anyway, there's two extremes. One extreme is to emphasize they're all the same. The other extreme is they're all absolutely different. And so we're going to take the middle path, you know, the golden mean, that they're some they're, they're alike in some ways, they're different in some ways. Um, another goal I have, to the extent that religions are similar to each other, even at different times and places. In fact, that's a very powerful experience. If you read, let's say, an ancient book, and you suddenly connect to it, and you realize that someone wrote this or said this thousands of years ago in a different part of the world, and yet I really understand what this person means, and I really feel what this person is feeling. Now, of course, that can be done, that can be a product of our imagination, but a lot of times it's not. There's a sense in which people are people. And so we're going to try to draw universal lessons, not artificially, not recklessly or ignorantly but in a serious way we're going to try to draw universal lessons, so it's not just a bunch of data on a faraway part of the world a long time ago but we're going to try to find what this tells us about ourselves, what it tells us about life in general, about religion in general, about the world. So, let me just give a few very quick examples. Approximately 2,500 years ago, two new religions arose in India, which we'll talk about. One was, uh, first, the Jaina movement, the Jains, as they're often called nowadays. And uh, they were not really into preaching so much. They were not really into preaching so much, although they did uh, attract a significant number of people. But they weren't into preaching, whereas another movement, which came just after that, and was similar in many ways, at least in the beginning, was Buddhism and the Buddha himself uh, Siddhartha Gautam was into preaching, in fact he, he traveled all over the place throughout his life and the result one of the results is Buddhism became a world religion and the Jain religion is they have about 20 million people in India so that's, that's an interesting thing, like preaching, some people think it's not respectable to preach, some people are into preaching, so just this whole topic of preaching uh... <coughs> Another methodological, well, another methodological point. When you read the books, how should I put it? Um, We are going to read books in which scholars talk about religions. But at the same time, if you study Indian religion, you find, as I said, there are a lot of very intelligent people talking about us. So it's not just us talking about them. They're not just under our lens. Because there were scholars, there were philosophers, there were very serious thinkers throughout Indian history who were talking about us and what we're doing here. So we're, it's, pointed, it's going to be sort of a uh, among equals. In other words, we're going to talk about them but, but hear what they have to say about us. And uh, so in terms of what they call in the literary circles POV point of view, like when you read a novel, there's always a point of view. It's like first person, or second or third person, or like are you seeing seen the story through the eyes of one character or another. So in terms of point of view, when scholars write books, there are basically three points of view. One is what they themselves called, and this is getting somewhat old-fashioned, methodological atheism. Again, for several decades in the academic study of religion, they adopted an official policy called methodological atheism. Which means that, for the, let, let's say, for example, you're studying the, the rise of Islam, which, which grew very explosively uh, in its beginning. Now, for the purpose of understanding, why did that happen? What was the cause of that explosive growth and expansion of Islam? You should assume that the religious claims are not true. In other words, a Muslim might say, well, it grew because God was with us and because this was destined, whatever. So you should assume that's not true, And look, rather, for political reasons, economic reasons, sociological reasons. Now, as unfair as this may sound, this was, for decades, the standard methodology in academia. In fact, I had some knock-down, drag-out arguments with some scholars over this. Interestingly, uh, one of the things that kind of moderated this approach, which is obviously, I think, in some ways, irrational, because I think it's always dangerous to assume as true what you don't know to be true, it was the feminist movement in academia. Uh, And basically, they said, this is an approach of dead white males. I mean, that's a very short version of it, but the entrance of a lot more women into academia actually started to produce more open-minded approaches. And so there's methodological atheism, which some people still follow. And then, on the other extreme, there is sort of like the faithful rendition, because religion, up till... Not too long ago, I used to be studied in seminaries. I used to be studied in seminaries and in religious communities. In the in the Islamic world, for example, there's still that's still basically true. Most of the study of religion in the Islamic world is done in religious institutions. So, with the secularization of the Western world, the study of religion kind of moved into the academy. It's still studied in seminaries, but in terms of mainstream, like what society in general looks upon as mainstream scholarship. That tends to take place in secular universities. And so at first, the the secular universities kind of overcompensated and went to this methodological atheism because it was actually not academic respect. The religion departments years ago were kind of looked upon as, well, that's not really an academic department. Like, what are they doing in the university? So they kind of, you know, they kind of got a complex, overcompensated, went to methodological atheism, now it's sort of coming back to the middle. So another extreme is just to, let's say, talk about these religions as if, you know, I'm going to get up here and preach. Um, I'm not going to do that. So I'm not going to just be cynical about religious claims. I'm not going to preach. I'm going to try to be sort of in the middle again, which is to uh, simply try to understand what these religions claim about themselves and uh, look at it sociologically, psychologically, economically, in different ways, but just sort of, reserving judgment. Another point I want to make, uh, which I think is a very, very important point, I think it's one of the real blind spots of our civilization, of our at least academia in our civilization. And that is, um, I wrote this down actually, oh, here it is. Here's, here's a maxim. Which is that, um, I used to watch Beat the Clock when I was a kid. Um, to affirm or deny, to affirm or deny a proposition entails or requires the same knowledge and places one in the same realm of discourse. Okay, I'll explain what I mean. Let's say, for example, take something outside our area. If I am teaching Greek mythology and I make the claim that, as I've heard actually in classes that I've taken, the Greeks believed there was a rain and thunder god named Zeus, Zeus. Now, we know today that there's not really a guy named Zeus on top of Mount... Olympus or whatever, you know, hurling thunderbolts and making it rain. We now know that. Or, what if, let's say, I was teaching a class on Greek mythology and I said, actually, Zeus is the god of rain and thunder, and if you want your crops watered, if you want it to rain, you'd better worship Zeus. Now, my point is that both of those claims are equally religious. For example, let's say I'm teaching simple math and I say 2 plus 2 is 4 or I say 2 plus 2 is not 5 they're both statements about math if I say this math statement is true this math statement is false those are both statements about math and I have to know the answer to mark an answer wrong or right if you let's say I was giving a test and it was actually like a right or wrong test say it's a spelling test let's say we have a spelling bee like we just changed this into a big spelling bee. And so, if you spell a word, and I say that's right or it's wrong, it requires the same knowledge on my part. I'm still talking about spelling. So if you say that Zeus is or is not the god of rain and thunder, those are equally religious statements. As much as to say that a particular equation is right or wrong, those are equally statements about algebra. And so what's very interesting is that in our civilization, we have an extremely common uh, saying, or, or, I'm sorry, term, blind faith. Like, no one wants to be caught indulging in blind faith. And yet, if you believe something that's not true, or disbelieve something that is true, they're equally dangerous in terms of, uh, dangerous to your knowledge. What if, for example, someone came into this room and said, you know, there's a fire in the building, get out. And I said, I don't believe that. You don't believe that, do you? I mean, it can be very dangerous to disbelieve something which turns out to be true. Why don't we have, why don't we have in our civilization a balancing term, blind doubt? I mean, blind doubt is not a common term. So we live in a, I'm saying this because I want you to be aware of certain biases. We have to stand outside our century and just look at it, how people will see it maybe hundreds of years from now. So, in intellectual academic circles, if you doubt a religious claim and don't give any good reasons for your doubt, that is still respectable. Sort of like, just general skepticism about religion is respectable in many intellectual and academic circles. But if you say, I really believe in this holy thing, it's like, you do? Really? Why do you believe that? Like, I just want to make sure you're not going a little funny on us. So, the fact we have blind faith, not blind doubt, skepticism is more respectable than faith in many academic circles, shows not the nature of reality, but just the tilt of our civilization. And so, in studying religion, I want to compensate for that, not go to the other extreme, but just be actually fair, fair-minded, objective, and, and uh, so on. That's another important point, at least for me. Uh, What else? Oh, we're going to, from time to time in discussing these religions, I'm going to use uh, the Bhagavad Gita as a type of lens. The Gita, uh, well, in the book we have Introducing Hinduism, the author says on page 154, the enormous influence of the Bhagavad Gita makes its... Uh, I'm sorry I'm sorry, okay The enormous influence of the Bhagavad Gita makes it worth special consideration that's from our textbook and uh, the author later says uh, on page 38 the Bhagavad Gita, well earlier says on page 38 the Bhagavad Gita enjoys a remarkable authority and sanctity among contemporary Hindus giving it the status of Shruti which as we'll discuss is the oldest and most authoritative stratum of sacred literature in India, so the Bhagavad Gita is an extremely important central text within India, and has been for some time. And it's also a it, it's it's a philosophical text. It's not it's not simply a doctrine. It's actually, in a sense, it itself is a theory of the philosophy of religion, or the nature of the sociology of religion. It's a very interesting book. And so, from time to time, as we're discussing things. I'm going to look at it not merely from the point of view of modern scholarship, but also what would the Gita say about this, since that is such a central, important, lucid text. Now, history, the nature of history. Sorry, I keep. i, I got to get some better way to keep time. Anyway, we are going to look at history dialectically. I don't know if I need to... Oh, please turn off your cell phones. I'll, I'll just... I mean, you all know this, I'm sure. The... Uh, You've all heard that, right? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis? By the way, the syn in synthesis, S-Y-N, is uh, connected to Sanskrit. In Sanskrit, sung, S-A-M, uh, means together. And so, syn, of course, you get the Greek version of soon because that's not a topic we'll have, the Indo-European issue, the fact that Sanskrit, the ancient language, sacred language of Asia, really, but coming from India, <laughs> uh, is actually intimately connected with English. And almost all European languages. For example, if you were speaking Sanskrit and you were addressing your brother, you would say Prater. If you were addressing your mother, you would say Mater. Sister, Susser, Daughter, duiter I mean, I going go on and on all day giving you these things, but the idea is there's a very intimate linguistic connection. English, a Germanic language with a lot of Roman influence after the Norman invasion, English is intimately connected with Sanskrit and all scholars and even traditional thinkers in India agree that that means that if you go back far enough, there was an Indo-European civilization. So there is a sense in which, uh, studying ancient India, we are studying a big chunk of the roots of Western civilization. So, um, anyway, the thesis, the antithesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis... Of course, Hegel, the great you know philosopher of history, and then Marx. So we're going to be studying history dialectically. And um, as you'll see on, on the paper topics, basically I divide the class into two parts. And there's a paper after each part. So, so that's basically the structure of the class. Two halves. At the end of each half, there's a paper due. And each half of the course is divided into three dialectical historical phases, uh, which I will. That's Yeah. And that's on the. Um, okay. The um, in the first half of this semester, the three historical phases. And again, I don't have to worry about it now. i going to go over this a lot. Is just like the trailer. The three historical phases in the first half of the class will be the first phase, what is called generally by scholars the Vedic period. The Vedic period. And I, I should take a minute to explain the word Veda because it's, it's a word I'm going to use a lot. It comes from the Sanskrit root Vid. The um, ancient Sanskrit grammar was actually literally millennia ahead of Europe and other parts of the world in the study of language. They had an extraordinarily sophisticated knowledge of language. In fact, Modern linguistics, the modern field of linguistics, basically came from the discovery of ancient Sanskrit grammar, phonology, and phonetics, and uh, the morphology of language. It actually came from the discovery of Sanskrit. So they had an extremely modern scientific understanding of language, and they analyzed their own language as organically growing out of verbal roots into stems and full words. So uh, this needs to know. It's, it's a verb bur- that no, We still a- and so you. It, it can also be written like this, bit, and the V, it was often pronounced like W, and we still have the English word wit, which is directly to Sanskrit. You have the German verb uh, wissen, to know, and um, and also English words, well, English words like video. You, of course, you have the Latin vedere, which means to see. We have words like vision, video. That's all right there with the Sanskrit bit, to know. So from the Sanskrit root, you have the word veda, which means knowledge. Even the word know in Sanskrit, if uh, you know Greek is just uh, gnosis, and then Sanskrit, jnana. This is not going to be a language class, but I just wanted to give you a little flavor for this, that uh, this is all connected. Kno, English used to be phonetical, by the way, because it was a Germanic language. People actually used to say kno, but after a while in England, I started to think, like, why are we talking like this? So they so they kind of moderated the Germanic thing and just... Anyway, you have know, the English word gnom, and gnosis, and gyana, which in, English, in India is pronounced, you know, gyan So you have an earlier period. The first period of ancient Indian history is called the Vedic period because life is centered around uh, sacred books called the Vedas, which we'll talk about. And uh, even in that Vedic period there's sort of a tension between the ritualists and the philosophers, but we'll talk about that later. Then something new happens. The second phase, we have this Vedic culture, which is existing for some time, sort of this unified Vedic culture. Then there's tension within the culture, and from within India, from within the culture, this new thing arises, which is things like Buddhism, for example, which is sort of a, a revolt against the Vedic culture which had become somewhat ritualistic and uh, sort of an unresponsive monopoly, let us say. It's like in business. And so you have this challenge coming from Buddhism and Jainism. And so in response to that challenge, in, uh, the Vedic culture kind of reinvents itself. It, it, it sort of like gets lean and mean again. It, it, it goes back to its roots and comes up with a sort of a reformed and uh, attractive version of itself, which eventually became Hinduism. And so these are the three stages that we'll be discussing a lot. So the, the first half of the semester we divide into these three historical phases. The Vedic period, and then the, uh, the challenge coming from Buddhism and Jainism, and then the synthesis. That's the dialectic. The synthesis, which actually Buddhism and Hinduism started to come back very close to each other. So that's the first half of the semester. There will be a paper due roughly on that. And uh, the second half of the semester, we're going to take it from there, continue the history, The first stage of the dialectic, the second half of the class, will be kind of like the status quo. You now have this India, which is sort of at peace with itself. Buddhism and Jainism and other other movements like that have been kind of, to a certain extent, brought back within the fold. They're still a a separate religion, but everyone's kind of talking to each other and sharing all kinds of ideas and so on. Then about a thousand years ago, something extremely traumatic and violent happens in India, which is a Muslim invasion. And uh, that's the antithesis, the Muslim invasion which brought, really, for the first time, in a major way, into India, you could say, the Middle Eastern way of doing religion. In the sense of sectarian, you know, this is the only religion, your religion is false, your god is dead, and uh, you're evil if you don't join our religion. This is something which people never really imagined before in India. And and, uh, we're not going to engage in, like, uh, bashing other religions. And I should say that once the Muslims installed themselves in India and began to rule certain parts of India, there were many true saints within Islam. There were many, in fact, one of the most famous and revered kings in Indian history was a Muslim, the Mughal Emperor Akbar, who was in many ways an enlightened ruler. So the point is not going to be that, uh, you know, this was all bad. In some ways, it actually was sort of a... It actually had some good effects. As they say in Spanish, no hay malo que por bien no venga. There's no bad evil. It doesn't come for some good. But the level of violence, violence against civilians, uh, religious persecutions, violent religious persecutions was something which was very new in South Asia. I mean, Buddhism, which basically rejected the whole religion that was going on in India, ro- arose as a powerful new religion and they never really had a war about it. This is being conceivable in other parts of the world. So, this, so you have the thesis for the second part of the semester is just the status quo as a result of the first half. There was this dialectical historical process and then you get a, sta- a new status quo and then you have this invasion and India really is transformed. It becomes a different place in some ways. I mean obviously a lot of things are the same but in some ways it becomes a different place. The third stage uh, of, of the, uh, this, the third phase will be the Europeans coming to India and that again kind of changes everything. I mean, it doesn't, I mean some things don't change, some things are perennial, but a lot of things do change and, and India is kind of pulled into the modern world by this European invasion. So those are the three phases, for the uh, three states of the second half of the semester, the status quo, Buddhism and Hinduism kind of living side by side and creatively developing all kinds of interesting things, a Muslim invasion which transforms India, and then a European invasion. So those are the three stages of the second half of the semester. It's symmetrical in its own way. So the papers will... Um, almost out of time. Okay, nine minutes. Eleven minutes, actually. So there, again, there are two papers one paper on the first half of the semester, another paper on the second half of the semester. And as far as the papers go, um, I really want you to just to get the basic historical structure of what happened in Indian religions. Once you get that down, it's very simple. We'll talk about it a lot. It'll be the framework for the class, and I think it'll be very obvious and easy for everybody because you'll hear it so many times. And then within that framework, you can go wherever you want. I mean, I mentioned certain things in this paper, like if you're particularly interested in... um, um, the lives of saints rituals, philosophy, sociology, politics spiritual and mystical experiences I mean, basically anything that's interesting to you you can talk about or research uh, but it should be within this historical framework so we're all on the same planet and um, any questions on, on any of this stuff? yes when you were talking about the scholars having three POVs, one was the anthropological atheism, uh, atheism and then the second one was like going to the other extreme uh, preaching. Preaching, right. And what was the third? The middle is trying to be sensitive to and respectful of religious traditions, but at the same time uh, analyzing them. There was not, not Not preaching and not just being sort of irrationally skeptical and just assuming that all religious claims aren't true and just trying to understand what they say about themselves and what other people say about them and without never without drifting into if you're doing academics if you're doing secular academics being careful not to drift into religious preaching whether you're preaching for or against because to, to deny a religious claim is to make a religious claim just as to claim that an equation in algebra is false or wrong is to make a claim about algebra so, if there are no questions, uh... Oh, office hours. Well, that's that's on the syllabus also. Monday and Wednesday in, in Anderson. Yes? Um, start the oh, you can't find the books. I've got the books. Oh, it's Goring. Oh, Goring? Goring? Goring, I don't know. I don't know either. So. <laughs> no, no. Do you have any trouble finding the books? Let me know. Or anything else? My, I mean, I see my job here is to try to facilitate your learning experience and so if there's anything I can do to uh, to help you have a more enjoyable flight, Mm -hmm. just ring your little bell. So we will have office hours and uh, that's basically it. No other questions?